When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is a circumstance of sincere gratification to me that, on meeting the great council of our nation, I am able to announce to them on grounds of reasonable certainty that the wars and troubles which have for so many years afflicted our sister nations have at length come to an end, and that communications of peace and commerce are once more opening among them. The assurances, indeed, of friendly disposition received from all powers with whom we have principal relations had inspired a confidence that our peace with them would not have been disturbed. But a cessation of irregularities, which had affected the commerce of neutral nations, and of the irritations and injuries produced by them, cannot but add to this confidence, and strengthens at the same time the hope that wrongs committed on unoffending friends under a pressure of circumstances, will now be reviewed with candor, and will be considered as founding just claims of retribution for the past, and new assurance for the future. Whoever considers the temper of the day must be satisfied that this message is likely to add much to the popularity of our chief magistrate. It conforms as far as would be tolerated at this early stage of our progress in political perfection to the bewitching tenets of that illuminated doctrine which promises man ere long an emancipation from the burdens and restraints of government, giving him a foretaste of that pure felicity which the apostles of this doctrine have predicted. After having, with infinite pains and assiduity, formed the public tastes for this species of fare, it is certainly right for those whom the people have chosen for their caterers to be attentive to the gratification of that taste. But those whose patriotism is of the old school, who differ so widely from the disciples of the new creed, that they would rather risk incurring the displeasure of the people by speaking unpalatable truths than betray their interest by fostering their prejudices, will never be deterred by an impure tide of popular opinion from honestly pointing out the mistakes or the faults of weak or wicked men, who may have been selected as guardians of the public weal. Despite his protestations in his first annual message to Congress that, quote, the wars and troubles have come to an end, President Jefferson, just two months in after his inauguration in 1801, had to assemble his cabinet to discuss war abroad for, as mentioned at the end of the last episode, Tripoli had declared war against the United States. For someone determined to slash the federal budget by shrinking the size of the military, this was unwelcome news to the president. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you, dear listener, to the presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Everett from the Age of Napoleon podcast and Mike from the American Revolution podcast for providing the intro quotes for this episode. One of the greatest joys of podcasting for me has been in having the opportunity to collaborate with so many other podcasters and to share information about their work. These are two amazing podcasts that are in my regular rotation. 
As many of the folks who have been major players in our narrative to date were key figures in the American Revolution, Mike's podcast can provide you some context for their careers and contributions prior to 1789. Meanwhile, Everett's podcast can help you to understand where we've been and are going as Napoleon Bonaparte and his role in French history will feature large in our narrative for some time to come. I hope you'll take some time once you're done listening to this episode to try out both the American Revolutions podcast and the Age of Napoleon podcast if you don't listen to them already. Links to both will be on the Source Notes page for this episode as well as on my social media. I also had another special thanks to convey. As some of you may have noticed, The intro music is different with this episode. For those of you listening in the future, you won't have noticed a difference as I plan to replace the intro and outro music in the previously released episodes. However, those listening along with release know that I initially used clips from variations on Yankee Doodle. I long knew that I would change the intro and outro music with the Jefferson series, and I tried to start the search early. However, the crunch time ultimately came where I had to run with it, and the Yankee Doodle variations worked, but they weren't my first choice. Thankfully, after I started the series, a line of communication opened to get to use clips from my first choice, Jefferson and Liberty, which was a song used by Jefferson supporters during the presidential elections where he was on the ballot. Thus, I'd like to thank the Itinerant Band for allowing me to use clips from their rendition of that song and highly encourage you to check them out. They have frequently been the featured soundtrack for me while working on new scripts, and I can't recommend them enough. You can find them online through their website, itinerant, that's I-T-I-N-E-R-A-N-T, band, all one word, dot com. There, you can find out where they'll be performing next, as well as purchase their CDs or digital downloads. An extra special thanks to Susan, who is my contact to make this happen. Now, without further ado, Let's turn our attention back to President Jefferson. With Jefferson back in town and his Secretary of State and Secretary of the Treasury now in place, the President called his cabinet together on May 15, 1801 to discuss the threat to American shipping that the news of Tripoli's declaration of war posed. Orders had already been issued to assemble a squadron at Norfolk, Virginia, so Jefferson posed the question to his cabinet whether the squadron should be ordered to set sail for the Mediterranean and what their purpose would be once they got there. While all agreed that the ships should be sent to protect American shipping, Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin and Acting Secretary of the Navy Smith felt that Jefferson had a broad authority to use military force against a foreign power that had declared war on the U.S., while Attorney General Lincoln argued that, quote, our men of war may repel an attack on individual vessels, but after the repulse may not proceed to destroy the enemy's vessels generally. Ultimately, the argument for a broader authority prevailed, and in the order sent to the squadron commander on May 20th, he was told to, quote, chastise the enemy and destroy the opponent's vessels wherever you shall find them. Meanwhile, in an attempt to avoid a conflict, Jefferson wrote to the day of Tripoli, Yusuf Karamandli, on May 21st, informing him that the squadron was being sent, but that, quote, we hope that their appearance will give umbrage to no power, for, while we mean to rest the safety of our commerce on the resources of our own strength and bravery in every sea, we have yet given them in strict command to conduct themselves towards all friendly powers with the most perfect respect and good order. The administration wasn't seeking a war, but Jefferson was clear that he was prepared to use military might to protect American interest. 
He had long been opposed to the policy of his predecessors, Washington and Adams, in paying tribute to the Barbary states. Now, he was in a position to set a new policy course. This meant, however, getting the affairs of the Navy Department in order. As discussed in episode 3.4, the Navy had been a troublesome area for Jefferson in the first couple of months of his term. In terms of leadership, he had only thus far managed to temporarily retain Adams as Secretary of the Navy, then secure Samuel Smith on a short-term basis as he searched for a permanent secretary. On top of that, he was even finding dissension in the ranks. Jefferson and his advisors had decided upon Thomas Truxton to be commander of the squadron gathered at Norfolk, despite the fact that Truxton was a known Federalist. Truxton's successful leadership in the Quasi-War, as discussed in episodes 2.13 and 2.28, made him stand out amongst the officers of the Navy. However, after having a friendly meeting with Jefferson on March 6th, Truxton ended up in a back-and-forth about an issue of seniority in the ranks and ultimately declined the request that he command the squadron. Thus, the administration turned to Captain Richard Dale for the post, and Dale arrived in Norfolk to assume command and his new rank of Commodore on May 22nd. By June 1st, the squadron will be eastward bound for the Mediterranean. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Meanwhile, Jefferson continued his hunt for a secretary of the Navy. He wrote Senator Governor Morris on May 8th that, quote, I believe I shall have to advertise for a secretary of the Navy. On May 16th, he tried his hand again with Representative William Jones. Though Jones had already rejected the post, the president wrote that, quote, If I could see the Navy Department as well filled, my satisfaction would be complete and my confidence entire that whatever wisdom and integrity could do for our country would be ensured to it by such an administration. Persistence had worked for Samuel Smith, but not with Jones. Jones wrote back on May 20th that he could not, at the time, quote, withdraw my personal attention from my commercial pursuits. It wouldn't be until July 9th that any of Jefferson's efforts at filling the cabinet post would actually result in success. On that date, the president sat down and wrote a letter to Robert Smith, the brother of acting Secretary of the Navy Samuel Smith. Robert was the youngest of five children and had graduated from the College of New Jersey in 1781. He had managed to get in some service during the Revolution at the Battle of Brandywine, but his brother Samuel had been the decorated veteran of that war. Robert had been trained in the law, then turned towards the realm of politics in the 1790s, serving in first the Maryland Senate before gaining a seat in the Maryland House of Delegates. When called to the post of Secretary of the Navy, he was serving as a member of the Baltimore City Council. Why then, you have to ask, dear listener, was Robert Smith chosen for this post of increasing importance in the schema of the Jefferson presidency, considering a squadron had just been sent off to the Mediterranean to defend U.S. shipping interests? Well, a couple of things must be understood for our modern listeners, 2019 as of this recording. First, there weren't nearly as many Americans at the time as there are now. The 1800 census had the entire nation's population at just over 5.3 million, versus the nearly 308 million of the 2010 census. Thus, 
the pool of candidates who would have been seen as acceptable for the post was already much smaller than it would be in later times. And it wasn't like Jefferson could look for potential candidates through professional social media outlets on the internet. He had to rely on the knowledge of people he knew directly or recommendations of close associates. Then, of course, you get to the question of what the president was actually looking for in potential candidates. Jefferson's criteria for the job were someone of Democratic-Republican leanings who had knowledge of things nautical. It was also seen as important at the time to have representation from various states in the Union in key administration posts as a unifying factor and to provide the president with a greater variety of information about conditions on the ground at the state and local levels. South Carolina and the Port of Charleston weren't a guaranteed Democratic-Republican stronghold at the time, and he couldn't bring in yet another Virginian if he wanted a geographic balance. There were a limited number of Democratic-Republican options from the Federalist stronghold of New England, and he had already brought in New Englanders at the War Department and as Attorney General. He had tried to bring in someone from Pennsylvania, and that hadn't worked out so well. Thus, Maryland was his best bet. As Jefferson wrote to Robert Smith, quote, Though the law is your particular profession, Yet your habits from infancy must have made you entirely familiar with naval things, at least as much as is necessary to enable you to judge of the qualifications of your agents and to direct them. Did the president have any prompting in this decision for a permanent appointment to the post from Robert's brother, the acting secretary? Quite possible. Though Jefferson makes a point in a letter to Robert Smith on the same date of seeming as if he was just informing him of the idea. Taking him at face value, the president did prevail on Samuel, quote, Let me beseech you, my dear sir, to give us the benefit of your influence with him, i.e. Robert, to prevail on his acceptance. You can give him the necessary information as to the state of the office and what it is like to be. And I hope through your intercession and his patriotism that this is the last time the Commonwealth will have to knock at the door of its children to find one who will accept of one of its highest trusts. Now, dear listener, I'm willing to give folks the benefit of the doubt in most instances, but I've got to call shenanigans on this one. Get your grains of salt at the ready, but I have a hard time believing that Jefferson decided on Smith's youngest brother for a cabinet post without some fraternal prodding or, at the very least, consultation. If the Jefferson narration is to be believed, miraculously, Robert Smith decided to accept, and on July 15th, he was appointed to the post in a recess appointment. Robert resigned from the Baltimore City Council on the 20th, and on July 27th, he assumed his role as Secretary of the Navy. July 1801 would also mark the first celebration of the 4th of July since the nation's capital moved to Washington. Jefferson entertained, quote, a hundred citizens of Washington and Georgetown, along with a group of Cherokee chiefs at the President's house that afternoon. As the Marine Band played, historian Dumas Malone notes that Jefferson's guests, quote, disposed of vast quantities of the refreshments he generously provided in his usual dining room. The president, rather than being removed at the head of a receiving line, as his predecessors had done at public receptions, apparently mingled with those in attendance. Though Jefferson distinguished himself from his predecessors in many ways, in others, he did stick with tradition, including with his departure for his home on July 30th. Like Philadelphia, Washington was a low-lying, tidewater city, but unlike Philadelphia, it did not have the, quote, sanitary regulations designed to prevent the spread of dysentery, 
yellow fever, smallpox, and malaria. Instead, it was, quote, a city dotted with swampy stretches and pools of stagnant water. As Jefferson wrote to Gallatin, quote, I consider it a trying experiment for a person from the mountains to pass the two bilious months on the tidewaters. I have not done it these 40 years, and nothing should induce me to do it. As it is not possible but that the administration must take some portion of time for their own affairs, I think it best they should select that season for absence. General Washington set the example of those two months. Mr. Adams extended them to eight months. I should not suppose our bringing it back to two months a ground for grumbling, but grumble who will, I will never pass those months on Tidewater. Thus, in the heat of the summer, it became customary for many to leave the city. Like Jefferson, the Madisons returned to Virginia in late July with the Secretary of State having suffered from, quote, a slight bilious attack, and thus anticipating using his time at his home, Montpelier, to recover his health. Dearborn and Lincoln were also back home by August, according to letters in the Jefferson Papers written in that time frame. Unlike their colleagues, Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin and Secretary of the Navy Smith remained in Washington, D.C. over the summer, and both used the time productively to get to know their new respective offices. According to Gallatin biographer Nicholas Dungan, this period was key for the new Treasury hit. As Dungan wrote, quote, During the summer and autumn of 1801, he, Gallatin, mastered the operations of the Treasury, filled appointments to office, and determined the levels of expenditure in the other departments of the government. As we saw during Alexander Hamilton's tenure in the office and, to a lesser extent, during Oliver Walcott's tenure, the role of the Secretary of the Treasury could be, quote, more than that of a mere technician. He, the Secretary, had to be a statesman whose principal concern was the totality of government administration. As was Jefferson, Gallatin was quite concerned about the national debt, and the swift elimination of it was a focus for him from day one. He felt that the previous administrations had focused public expenditures on unproductive and sometimes disastrous purposes. Of particular disdain to him, as mentioned in episode 3.4, was spending money on building up the military infrastructure which he felt would inevitably lead to war. Even more galling to Gallatin than the martial nature of that particular expenditure was borrowing money in order to do it, as had been done under the Federalist. Unlike Jefferson, who tended to view indebtedness as a whole as bad, Gallatin did see the usefulness of credit under certain circumstances. But Gallatin objected to the state of the national debt as it was when he took over at Treasury, as the government had to collect taxes in order to pay interest on its debt which Gallatin knew, quote, would tend to limit capital accumulation. Given the state of affairs, Gallatin urged Jefferson to take a more measured approach to repealing internal taxes until they could develop a plan on how to cut expenses and shift funds to pay off the debt. But the president remained fixed on pushing for repeal. Meanwhile, Gallatin soon found himself in conflict with his colleague at the Navy Department, Robert Smith, over his proposals to reduce that branch of the military. Indeed, even beyond the unenviable position of taking charge of a department that was intended from day one to have its influence and scope wane, as Smith took charge and got to work in the summer of 1801, he quickly realized that Jefferson's ordering the squadron to the Mediterranean meant that, in order to make the Navy effective, plans to dramatically cut naval expenditures needed to be shelved. Smith could only hope 
that news from the squadron would help support his arguments. Commodore Dale's squadron had arrived in Gibraltar Bay on July 1st after a violent crossing of the Atlantic to learn that the government of Tripoli had, in fact, declared war on the United States. Thus, Dale, after finding Pasha Karamanli unmoved by an attempt to supplement Jefferson's peaceful overture with a letter of his own, issued orders to have the majority of his squadron start a blockade of Tripoli. As described by historian Ian Tull, this blockade proved to be, quote, feeble and intermittent. The unfamiliar harbor was protected by uncharted reefs and rocks, and the deep draft American frigates could not safely approach the main channel. Frequent gales sent a heavy swell on shore, requiring the blockading vessels to gain sea room or risk being thrown onto the enemy's beach. Though maintaining the squadron cost twice what Caramonly was asking for in tribute, as noted by historian Frank Lambert, quote, the costly enterprise underscored Jefferson's determination to eliminate the Barbary pirate scourge. On August 1st, one of the ships of the squadron had an opportunity to prove its worth. The USS Enterprise was commanded by Lieutenant Andrew Sterrett, who had previously served under Captain Truxton during the Battle of Les Saint-Jean in 1799, as discussed back in episode 2.13. The Enterprise on the 1st engaged a Tripolitan 14-gun galley ship called the Tripoli in a three-hour battle. The Tripolitan galley was outgunned from the beginning, but kept fighting. Twice, they lowered their colors to signal a surrender, but as the Enterprise approached to take the ship, the Tripolitans resumed the battle. It was to no avail, however. After the Tripoli lost 60 of its crew, the Enterprise finally overtook the ship. But, as Skerritt did not feel that he had the authorization to take it as a prize, ordered the ship's mast to be cut away and for the Tripoli's guns to be tossed into the Mediterranean before allowing it to return home. The admiral in charge of the vessel, once news of the defeat reached Pasha Karamanli, was ordered to be, quote, beaten and forced to ride backward on a donkey through the streets of the city while wearing a necklace of sheep entrails. This victory would prove to be the only battle of the squadron's tour of duty, but it was enough to yet again prove the effectiveness of the American Navy. Meanwhile, back on the other side of the Atlantic, the battles over appointments were still occurring. Despite any strains that the election may have put on their relationship, Vice President Burr had, like many others, put forward a few names of men that he felt worthy of appointments to posts held by Federalists. Now, what's interesting about this list is that, as I've seen it described in a couple of books, it was just that Burr was making a few recommendations for Post in New York. However, I happened upon a transcription of it in the National Archives database, Founders Online, which is a great source for primary resources and upon which I lean heavily. Anyway, in the actual memorandum from Burr, he not only makes recommendations for Post in New York, but also in Connecticut and South Carolina. Geographically, Connecticut was close to New York City, so Burr likely had some contacts there and his new son-in-law was a rising star in South Carolina. However, what's really interesting about this is that Jefferson and Gallatin made notes on this memorandum from Burr. Burr had recommended Bishop for a postmaster position, but Jefferson updated the list when they decided against the position that Burr had suggested. For example, of the appointment of Bishop as collector of the Port of New Haven. This leads me to wonder whether Jefferson and R. Gallatin asked Burr to provide this list. We may never know for certain, but that popped into my head, so I thought I'd share. Back to the narrative. Jefferson did act quickly on a couple of Burr's recommendations, naming John Swartwout as a U.S. Marshal and Edward Livingston as District Attorney, 
though the latter may have been less about Burr and more about appeasing the Livingston family. On a side note, Edward Livingston's going to be in our narrative for a while, so you may want to make a note of the name. Back to Burr and his list, though. After those two appointments, the others languished. Burr was particularly concerned about his recommendation of Matt Davis as naval officer for the New York Custom House. As noted by Burr biographer Milton Lomask, quote, Few men were personally closer to Burr than Matt Davis, or more devoted to his political welfare. Burr wrote to Gallatin on the matter, asserting that, quote, Strange reports are here in circulation respecting Jesuit machinations against Davis. The character of Mr. D is in some measure at stake. He has already waived a very lucrative employment in expectation of this appointment. He then followed this up with a letter to then-acting Secretary of the Navy Samuel Smith, again asserting how Davis would be a great choice for this appointment. Davis would even travel south in September to first Washington, where he spoke with Gallatin and gave him another letter from Burr pleading his case, then continued on to Monticello to meet with Jefferson personally. However, they would not be moved. By that point, the Democratic Republicans in New York State had already put on grand display what would later be known as the spoil system with the return of George Clinton to the governorship. Our old friend John Jay had decided against seeking a third term as governor, and thus, in the spring of 1801, the Federalists nominated Lieutenant Governor Stephen von Rensselaer to secede Jay, while Democratic Republicans turned to a reluctant former New York governor, George Clinton, as their nominee. When Clinton assumed office on July 1, 1801, he found his position, both politically and administratively, much changed. Since he had last been in office, the power to make nominations had been taken away from the governor and invested in a council of appointment that was dominated by Governor Clinton's nephew, DeWitt Clinton. Again, this is one of those names you may want to remember. DeWitt overshadowed his uncle by utilizing the appointment power to turn out the Federalist office holders and cement a coalition with the Livingstons by naming, among other Livingston family members and supporters, Brock Hulse Livingston as a judge of the state Supreme Court and Edward Livingston, yes, the same Edward Livingston who was a U.S. Marshal, as mayor of New York City. Don't worry, Edward isn't going to give up the Marshal position. He'll just serve in a federal and state office at the same time because that's how they rolled back in the day. This blatant political power grab was abhorrent to many Democratic Republicans, including the now powerless Governor Clinton and the not quite as powerless Secretary of the Treasury. What happened in New York State in the second half of 1801 and the criticism of such illustrated the reason why Jefferson had laid out his guidelines for removals. As Gallatin wrote to Jefferson in a letter that Davis carried to Monticello, quote, I feel a great reluctance in yielding to that general spirit of persecution which, in that state particularly, disgraces our cause and sinks us on a level with our predecessors. The incumbent naval officer at the Port of New York, a Federalist, had done nothing wrong while in office, and he had not been one of the last-minute appointments made by Adams. Gallatin admitted that, quote, if Rogers, the current naval officer, shall be removed, I have no hesitation in saying that I do not know a man whom I would prefer to Mr. Davis for that office. Despite that, he could not bring himself to recommend the removal of Rogers. Thus, Rogers remained in place, and Davis and his would-be patron Burr would be disappointed. David Gelston, another of Burr's recommended appointees, has been cited in the research I've done as an example of someone appointed to a post by Jefferson for solely political reasons. But even with Gelston, it seems that his predecessor's removal was justified by Jefferson's standards. 
Burr had recommended Galston as collector of the Port of New York, a quite lucrative position. However, Jefferson would wait until Gallatin was in office and was able to start to get a handle of the Treasury Department before making any move on the recommendation. In late June, Gallatin reported to Jefferson a list of collectors who were behind in their account statements. The collector of the Port of New York, Joshua Sands, was on that list. Thus, in July, Jefferson appointed Gelston to the post. Now, this gets back to the point that I made in episode 3.4. Who defines what quote-unquote official misconduct is? Was Sands really guilty of malfeasance or just laid in his paperwork? Either way, there was a convenient justification to, as Jefferson himself noted about this appointment, quote, correct the political imbalance. The party power grab in New York State had a couple of other consequences. First, Gallatin was so disgusted by the news that, on July 25th, he sent Jefferson for his approval a draft circular to customs collectors on, quote, the appointment of a number of inferior officers subject to my approbation There is, on that subject, on which we must act in concert, but one sentiment that I wish to communicate. It is that the door of office be no longer shut against any man merely on account of his political opinions, but that, whether he shall differ or not from those avowed either by you or by myself, integrity and capacity suitable to the station be the only qualifications that shall direct our choice. The circular that ultimately went out on August 20th, however, only contained a reminder about, quote, a rigid adherence to the regulation of rendering each quarterly account. Jefferson, in his response to Gallatin's draft, had expressed his, quote, approval entirely, but asserted that he felt restrained by the controversy over the appointment of the collector at New Haven, as discussed in episode 3.4, that both he and Madison, quote, thought it better to be kept back. He gave Gallatin permission, quote, Whenever you shall thank the public mind in a proper state for this reformation, you shall be so good as to send out a circular, either with or without previous communication to me. Evidently, Gallatin never felt the public mind to be in that proper state, which could very well have been due to the Federalist response that summer. The flames of the Federalist furor towards the removals in New York and Connecticut spread through the Northeast, and Federalist newspapers attacked the removals, quote, as a direct contradiction of the inaugural address. Former Speaker Theodore Sedgwick pronounced it, quote, a mass of electioneering corruption. However, whereas Democratic Republicans, when shut out of power a couple of years prior, had retreated to reorganize, Federalists in 1801 merely retired. Those of you who listened to episode 2.25 already know what John Adams' post-presidency entailed. John Jay, meanwhile, had already written to his wife Sarah six years prior of his desire for, quote, a few years of leisure and tranquility in what was left of their lives. So after leaving the governorship, he retired with little intention of becoming involved in politics again. Further south, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney of South Carolina, as described by his biographer Marvin Zonizer, quote, had become a victim of Federalist propaganda and had temporarily lost his political grip. Pinckney, along with the other members of his family involved in politics, had supported the Federalist strategy of voting for Burr in the tiebreaker in the House of Representatives, and, upon Burr's loss, in turn, quote, lost any future political support they might have received from the Jeffersonians in South Carolina. The only Pinckney who had come out well was Charles Coatsworth's cousin, Charles Pinckney, 
who had supported Jefferson and thus had been awarded the post of U.S. Minister to Spain. His cousin had previously been in the U.S. Senate, and thus Federalists approached Charles Coatsworth about standing for election to the vacant seat. Charles Coatsworth demurred, asserting that he felt the cause to be hopeless. The eventual Federalist candidate, John Rutledge Jr., did indeed go down in defeat, and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney languished on his island plantation off the coast of South Carolina. There was one Federalist leader, however, who was not throwing in the towel. But before we get to him, let's get back to the Jefferson administration as they filter back into Washington at the end of the summer. The Federalist press had jumped on the fact that the president and a majority of his cabinet were absent from the capital city for months on end, echoing criticism that the Democratic-Republican press had lobbed at John Adams not too long prior. However, presenting a united front, the National Intelligencer led the way in Democratic-Republican newspapers defending the administration by citing the precedent set by Washington and Adams. Indeed, Jefferson's summer trip back to Monticello was not quite as much of a vacation as the Federalist press made it out to be. He was able to gather with his daughters and their families during this time, but their visit was not just an opportunity to catch up. Jefferson had obtained a culture from Dr. Benjamin Waterhouse and, while they were all gathered together, inoculated his family as well as some of those enslaved on the plantation against smallpox. As discussed in episode 3.1, Jefferson had already been inoculated himself long before in preparation for a life of travel, but he had apparently not seen fit to inoculate any others until this point. His son-in-laws would then proceed to inoculate some of those enslaved on their respective plantations. But one has to wonder, besides being on the cutting edge of medical advancements, whether Jefferson had an ulterior motive in mind. Jefferson was desperate for the company of his family in Washington, but he had also been witness to how disease could wipe through an entire community, as had happened with yellow fever in Philadelphia during his tenure as vice president. I have to wonder if, for a man who had already suffered so much personal loss in his life with the death of children and his wife, he grew concerned about the possibility of exposing his remaining family to danger in being in an urban tidewater environment exposed to many people on a regular basis. Again, my two cents here, but the timing is interesting in my humble opinion. Beyond the inoculation, Jefferson was occupied with the paperwork involved in governing the nation while at Monticello. During this time, he would enjoy the company of Secretary of State Madison, with the two going back and forth between their nearby homes. The late summer and early fall of 1801 would also provide an opportunity for the two to work on securing a trustworthy candidate in yet another key post in the administration. If you don't remember Postmaster General Joseph Habersham, I won't think any less of you, considering that his only appearance to date in the narrative is a passing mention in episode 1.35. Habersham had taken over the post from Timothy Pickering on February 25, 1795, back in the Washington administration, and had, during his tenure, acted with integrity. He had worked to appoint trustworthy individuals at post offices across the nation and award contracts for carrying the mail to, quote, an honest, sober man who is competent to the business, who came in at the lowest bid. Habersham had overseen a dramatic expansion of the post office, with the number of post offices growing from 453 in 1795 to 903 in 1800. Likewise, there had been just over 13,000 miles of post roads in 1795. By 1800, that number had grown to just under 21,000. 
In the same time, though, the number of clerks in the general post office had only grown from four to seven. Still, Habersham ably managed the charge that he had been given by President Washington, and by Jefferson's measure, there was no reason to replace him. Jefferson and Madison, however, were willing to prove that where there is will, there is a way. Apparently, Habersham was first approached by the administration about a judicial appointment in his home state of Georgia. However, Habersham turned down that position in a letter to Madison. As Madison was at Monticello at the time he received the letter, Jefferson wrote to Habersham on September 4th, informing him that Samuel Meredith had sent in his resignation as U.S. Treasurer. Would Habersham possibly be interested in that post? When trying to get someone out of a certain office that they showed no intention of leaving willingly, what more effective means than to kick them upstairs? Habersham's initial response was to ask for more time to think, but his final answer was a no to the appointment and an acknowledgement of the writing on the wall. If Jefferson wanted the position so bad, Habersham wouldn't stand in his way. As he wrote to Jefferson on September 21st, quote, Upon a retrospect of the several communications which have taken place between us directly and through Mr. Madison, I found that I could not, consistent with that respect which I owed to myself, accept of any appointment under the present administration. Admitting that office was equally important and respectable, what assurance could I have that I should not be crowded out by the same unauthorized means which compelled me to resign the office of Postmaster General? Sincerity I have always considered to be one of the essential virtues, and I should have had no occasion to make this explanation if my observations to Mr. Madison and the circumstance of the letter had not occurred. Habersham's willingness to step aside made things easier for Jefferson, but the question remained, who should fill the post? Well, Jefferson had a few more positions to fill that he deemed more crucial. Thus, On October 7th, he wrote to Gideon Granger of Connecticut, informing him that, quote, the office either of auditor or treasurer of the U.S. will either the one or the other be vacant after this month. I do not as yet know which. Their salaries are equal, $3,000 each. Their rank equal. I shall be happy to have the vacancy supplied by yourself and shall consider it as fortunate for the public. I therefore take the liberty of proposing to you to accept whichever of the two shall be vacant and to give me an answer with as little delay as you can, the applications from other quarters being urgent. Yeah, Jefferson was not the greatest at writing motivating recruitment letters. I've got a couple of offices about to become vacant. I'm sure you'll do great at either or. Don't care which one you accept. It doesn't really matter. Before Granger could respond, though, Jefferson had to write him back on the 14th. I'll paraphrase this letter as such. So you remember those two offices I was promising you? Yeah, about that. That's right. After telling Granger to get a move on to fill one of the two offices, he instead had to write them that neither was currently vacant. Since his plan to move Habersham into the treasurer position had gone awry, he had offered the position to Richard Harrison, the auditor at the Treasury Department, and it seems had expected that he would accept. However, Harrison turned it down likely because of the security that the treasurer had to put up. Oh, yes. Jefferson, in his letter of the 14th, told Granger that he didn't really want the position of treasurer anyway, as the appointee, by federal law, had to put up a security of $150,000. I'm guessing, just in case the treasurer decided to, you know, run away with the federal treasury, the government didn't want to be completely stiffed. Jefferson quipped that, quote, judging of the feelings of others by my own, this putting up the security would not have been pleasant. <laughs> you think? 
Not everyone can borrow outrageous amounts of money at the drop of a hat, Mr. President. That's okay, though. Jefferson had a plan C. He was in need of a postmaster general, and it was a position, quote, of equal grade, emolument, and importance. I mean, completely different line of work, but why not Granger? He had just as many qualifications for that position as he did for the ones in the Treasury, which were, succinctly, none. So, you may ask, who was Gideon Granger anyway? He was mentioned briefly in episode 3.4, but let's take a moment to get to know him a bit better. He was born in Connecticut in 1767. Like his father before him, he would attend Yale and go on to study the law. Early on in his life, he got interested in politics and would hold a seat in the Connecticut General Assembly for most of the 1790s. Granger was a rather recent convert to the Democratic-Republican cause, having only affirmed his allegiance in 1798. But since then, he had quickly proven himself as an enthusiastic partisan. Jefferson thought Granger would bring good insight on the political climate in Connecticut that might help him to direct Democratic-Republican efforts in that state, and indeed told Granger as such in a letter on October 31st when he stated, quote, I cannot but believe that the rectification of public opinion, even in Connecticut, could be more promoted by you from hence by disseminating correct information than by your action there. Granger would agree to take the post, and on November 28th, was appointed as Postmaster General. Thus, he would be in place just in time for the new congressional session and Jefferson's first annual message to Congress. As the year was drawing to a close, Jefferson worked not only to get his administration fully staffed, but also to ensure that it was well organized. To that end, he sent out a circular on November 6 to his cabinet outlining his expectations for modes of communication up and down the chain of command and how the work of government would be directed. This plan of administration reflected the order and stability that Jefferson strived for in his day-to-day life. Indeed, he had settled into his own routine in Washington, as he described to his son-in-law, Thomas Mann Randolph, as follows. Quote, My business, I find, will often prevent my riding by post. It has now got to a steady and uniform course. It keeps me from 10 to 12 and 13 hours a day at my riding table, giving me an interval of four hours for riding, dining, and a little unbending. Pressing matters happening on our post day, of course, occasion me to miss a post. Unlike his predecessor, there had been no national emergency which had caused Jefferson to call Congress back in session early. So, as noted by Dumas Malone, Jefferson, quote, had a respite of nine months during which he could set his executive house in order and get ready for the troublesome legislators. Overall, as he reflected on 1801, though there had been some bumps, For the first transition of power from one faction to the next, it had gone rather well thus far, and Jefferson's optimism about the course ahead was reflected in the message that he sent to Congress on December 8th. The senators and representatives who filtered back to Washington, D.C. found that they were forced into whatever lodgings or boarding houses they could find for themselves near the still unfinished capital. Progress had been made in that the Senate was finally able to take up sole occupancy of the North Wing while the house moved to what was dubbed the Oven, a structure on the foundations of the planned South Wing. The members of Congress were not coming back promptly for the new session, though, and there was barely a quorum present as of the first week in December. Indeed, Vice President Burr wouldn't arrive for several more weeks. However, there were enough members to open the session. One of the first items of business was to elect a new Speaker of the House, and Nathaniel Macon of North Carolina was chosen for the post. Macon, 
who had fought in the Revolutionary War and had served in Congress since 1791, was seen as being a veteran in the House and a strong proponent of Jefferson. Meanwhile, John Beckley, a Democratic-Republican Party insider who has popped up on various episodes of the past two series, was returned to his post as clerk of the House of Representatives after being previously ousted when Federalists had charge of that body. With some of the pro forma business out of the way, Congress was ready to receive the president's message. This message would be different from those that had been delivered previously. Rather than Jefferson traveling from the president's house to the Capitol to address both houses of Congress, his secretary, Meriwether Lewis, walked into the Capitol to deliver the message. This break in tradition, which went back to Washington's presidency, was not a decision that Jefferson made on his own. Even before Macon became Speaker of the House, he was a prominent leader in the Democratic-Republican Caucus in Congress and thus wrote to Jefferson on April 20th of the expectation, quote, that the communication to the next Congress will be by letter, not a speech. Jefferson confirmed his intention of abiding by that anticipated charge in a letter of May 14th and, moreover, said of his annual message to Congress that, quote, no answer to it will be expected. As longtime listeners may recall from the previous two series, part of the procedure in the president's annual address, beyond just the president going to Congress to deliver the message, was in a special delegation being assigned the task of paying a call on the president to deliver a response. No more. The only response that Jefferson needed was an action on his recommendations. As noted in the first opening quote for this episode, Jefferson's message was largely upbeat though he did admit that, quote, to the state of general peace from which we have been blessed, one only exception exists. Tripoli, the least considerable of the Barbary states, had come forward with demands unfounded either in right or in compact, and had permitted itself to denounce war on our failure to comply before a given day. The style of the demand admitted but one answer. After noting the victory of the USS Enterprise, Jefferson wrote that, quote, The bravery exhibited by our citizens on that element will, I trust, be a testimony to the world that it is not the want of that virtue which makes us seek their peace, but a conscientious desire to direct the energies of our nation to the multiplication of the human race and not to its destruction. He went on to discuss his efforts to reduce the size of government and the military and to urge the new Congress to consider matters relating to the judiciary to ensure the impartiality of juries, as well as an easing of what he saw as the unjust naturalization requirements passed during the Adams administration. The law as it was in the books following the passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts required an individual to live in the U.S. for 14 years before being able to apply for citizenship. As Jefferson wrote, quote, Shall we refuse to the unhappy fugitives from distress that hospitality which the savages of the wilderness extended to our fathers arriving in this land? Shall oppressed humanity find no asylum on this globe? Concluding his message, Jefferson noted that, quote, These, fellow citizens, are the matters respecting the state of the nation which I have thought of importance to be submitted to your consideration at this time. Some others of less moment are not yet ready for communication will be the subject of separate messages. I'm happy in this opportunity of committing the arduous affairs of our government to the collective wisdom of the Union. Nothing shall be wanting on my part to inform as far as in my power the legislative judgment, nor to carry that judgment 
into faithful execution. Nothing in his annual message was really surprising in terms of Jefferson's previously expressed views, but it did signal that he intended to press forward with reforms and to steer the nation away from some of the policies that had been charted by his predecessors. While we have no way to test public opinion of the time to his annual message, it is worth noting that there was an eagerness in reading the president's address as the National Intelligencer sold out of the first run of its printed version of the address and had to issue new editions daily for the next three days. As can be expected, in the contemporary response of political figures, Democratic Republicans wrote glowing reviews while Federalists denounced it. Former Senator John Taylor of Caroline, a fellow Virginian Democratic Republican, wrote of the response to the message that, quote, nothing can exceed our exaltation on account of the president's message, and nothing can exceed the depression of the monarchist. Despite the low state of the Federalists, by the end of 1801, there was a new instrument which had been crafted to get out the party's message. While other Federalist leaders had spent the year in retreat, Alexander Hamilton had been working with partners to establish a new anti-Jeffersonian newspaper. Hamilton had selected a 35-year-old former member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives, William Coleman, to become chief editor of the newspaper. Coleman had already made a name for himself by having sent Jefferson what was described by historian Ron Chernow as, quote, a bombastic epistle after his election as president, in which he accused Jefferson of destroying the foundation that had been established by his predecessors and in its place building, quote, a foul and filthy temple consecrated to atheism and lewdness. Coleman could be seen as Hamilton's intended Federalist response to the likes of Benjamin Franklin Bosch and James Callender, the opposition attack dogs that had troubled Federalist administrations for the previous 12 years. However, the first issue of Coleman's New York Evening Post on November 16, 1801, struck more of a conciliatory tone, noting that, quote, We disapprove of that spirit of dogmatism, which lays exclusive claim to infallibility, and believe that honest and virtuous men are to be found in each party. Oddly enough, Callender himself had praise for the Evening Post at the beginning, proclaiming it to be, quote, beyond all comparison, the most elegant piece of workmanship that we have seen either in Europe or America. After the release of Jefferson's annual message, though, Hamilton would begin to use the Evening Post as his main avenue for attacking Jefferson. As noted in the second opening quote for this episode, the quote was the first of an 18-installment series of attacks on Jefferson. Unlike with the editors on the other side of the political divide, who were given loose guidance but allowed more free reign in their work, Coleman would be directly guided by Hamilton, noting frequent meetings with him at, quote, a late hour in the evening, where Hamilton would, quote, begin in a deliberate manner to dictate, and I to note down in shorthand. When he stops, my article is completed. Other Federalist leaders might be ready to throw in the towel, but Hamilton was in the fight for the long haul, and just getting warmed up. Representative Roger Griswold, Federalist from Connecticut, wrote after the delivery of Jefferson's annual message that, quote, under this administration, nothing is to remain as it was. Every minutia is to be changed. When Mr. Adams was president, the door of the president's house opened to the east. Mr. Jefferson has closed that door and opened a new door to the west. As we shall start to explore in the next episode, Representative Griswold could not have imagined just how prescient that statement was. But we must leave things where they stand for now, 
as our time has drawn to a close. Thanks so much again to Mike and Everett for providing the intro quotes for this episode. You can check out their podcast by finding the link on the source notes page for this episode on presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. I'll also be sharing information about their podcast on my social media. If you're not already, follow me on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, or on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. Thanks again also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from Jefferson and Liberty to book in our episodes from here on out. And be sure to look for information on them on social media and on the website. Should you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks to all of you who have shared information about the podcast, as well as those who have taken a moment to leave a rating and review. Finally, I can't thank you enough for listening. I'm excited about where our journey is going as we make our way in the narrative into 1802, and I'm glad to have you along for the ride. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.